Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. A few things to mention in this introduction. Uh, first one is uh, the Practical Cutter uh, Bunkai videos we've been adding to uh, both YouTube and the website. We've been getting these up as, uh, proving very, very popular and we're trying to get up as, as many as we can. I aim to get 50 of them up before the end of the year um, and there's been quite a few added since the last podcast and this one, um, about seven or eight if, I, if my memory serves me right. So if you've missed any of those, if you pop along to ianabernethy.com and click on the video section you can see them all listed underneath there or you can go along to youtube and check out the practical katabunkai channel um, so practical katabunkai all one word and check those uh, those videos out and um, three of the most recent videos we added were from uh, mark mcyoung's animal list barbecue where i taught for a couple of hours uh, there and we put some clips uh, available so you can go and see those where i explain uh, stances and what angles mean and the two-handed rule and all that kind of stuff relating to kata. But what I am also going to do is that full session, which I think gives a nice introduction to kind of the key principles of kata bunkai. Uh, we're going to edit that together uh, and make that available for you um, as well. Uh, so keep an eye out for that because I've got something, you know, a little bit special planned for that. So um, th that'll be coming soon. You'll be able to see the full thing in the not too distant future. Um, I'm also back in the US in uh, October as well, uh, in Missouri, so you can find all the details on the website, because it was great to see so many of you at uh, uh, Mark's Barbecue, and uh, nice to be able to talk to people face-to-face -face who I've only previously talked with uh, electronically, so uh, looking forward to the full weekend of teaching uh, in October. It's the first time I've been in the USA where I've taught for a full weekend as well, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so we'll get a lot of uh, material covered, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure. Oh, and yeah, while I was in... Uh, at the Mark's Barbecue, uh, I met up with uh, Chris Wilder. It's always fun to, to meet up with uh, Chris. And Chris interviewed me and, and everyone else who was there, really, uh, for the um, his Marshall Secrets uh, podcast. So if you check that out as well, there's a recent interview with me on there. I really enjoyed chatting to Chris and I think it made for a good interview and there's other ones but you know it's loads of any, anyone who was there you know Chris interviewed so you've got to check them all out it's, um, it's yeah pretty impressive and uh, back to our podcast the final thing I've got to mention is that in October it's been five years since the first podcast we did so which is amazing you know it's half a decade <laughs> Half a decade of podcasting, you know, wow. Um, so yeah, so firstly, thanks for, to everyone for listening in and the numbers keep, of listeners keep going up and up and up. So thank you everyone for spreading the word. But I want to do something quite special for the October one, the anniversary one. I'm still not quite sure what, but if you <laughs> but if you have any ideas um, the, of things you'd like to, to hear, there's been a few suggestions made, but I want to get a few more as well. Uh, uh, you can tweet, uh, you can send me a message via Twitter, send me a tweet or um, uh, by Facebook or or by email at ian at ianabernethy.com. Uh, just let me know what your thoughts are on what you'd like to see for the uh, fifth uh, anniversary, five-year anniversary mark, and we'll get something sorted. Okay, so that, that's enough for the introduction. Uh, the This month's podcast, we're discussing multiple uh, enemies. It's obviously a very big topic. There's lots of things uh, related to that subject. Uh, but what I've tried to do in this podcast is kind of... Uh, 
address the key points to give you some of the, the key areas to think about and how we approach that situation, how we can train it um, and how that relates to uh, karate kata as well. So I hope you enjoy this discussion on uh, multiple enemies. As I've done my best to keep it down to the half hour mark, so we're not too far off that. Uh, and I'm sure this will be uh, a subject we'll return to again. But I hope you enjoy this uh, initial exploration of multiple enemies. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the issue of multiple enemies. I'd like to cover this from both a self-protection perspective and, towards the ends of the podcast, from the perspective of uh, Karate Kata. I'd also like to briefly discuss training drills and a few of what I see as the more common mistakes and misunderstandings when it comes to multiple enemies. From a self-protection perspective, there is statistically a greater chance that you'll be attacked by a group than by an individual. And yet we see very little practice of protecting ourselves from groups in most dojos and in most self-protection training courses. Now, I think there are two main reasons for this. Um, firstly, there exists a strong uh, contamination, if we can call it that, from the sporting and fighting aspects of training. Because most uh, sporting bouts are one-on-one, -on -one, any system with a sporting aspect becomes focused on one-on-one -on -one tactics and training. Uh, even those with uh, those systems without a sporting outlet get influenced to think this way. Um, this is obviously not good for self-protection, but because most of the groups confuse fighting and self-protection as being one and the same, it, this glaring error tends to go unnoticed. Uh, the second reason why multiple enemies are often overlooked is because of the mistaken belief that it's too hard to train for. Uh, there have been instances of highly experienced martial artists and fighters publicly stating that an individual stands no chance against a group, and hence there's no point in training for it. Now, notably, those that have made such remarks are often from approaches that are better suited to one-on-one -on -one duels, and hence there may be an unwillingness to accept that their approach has limitations. However, I mean, you know, as we've talked about before in the, these podcasts, it should be acknowledged that no one approach can be universally applied in all situations and be expected to work perfectly. You can never divorce method from context. Um, the point to be made here is, though, that you know the can't win, give up and die approach is obviously seriously flawed. Um, when dealing with multiple enemies, you know, it's, it can be difficult, you know, um, but it's far from impossible and it can be effectively trained for. Um, so we can't just you know admit it on the the grounds that you know it's it's hard, it's it's difficult. So if you're effectively uh, going to be able to train to deal with uh, multiple enemies, the first thing we need to accept is that the tactics that you would use for a one-on-one -on -one situation simply won't cut it when you face more than one person. We need to put ego to one side and acknowledge that there is no universal best approach. Um, now, I always hesitate to say this because every time I do, people misconstrue it and get all bent out of shape at what they think I've said. Um, but when I say that a given method is not good for a given context, it does not mean there's anything wrong with that method. It simply means it was designed for something else. Now, like a hammer is not great for putting paint on the walls, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with a hammer. You know, it's designed for something else. Likewise, if you were to knock nails in with a paintbrush, you're going to be in for a long day. It's a matter of using the right tool for the job. Now, for the past 10 to 15 years or so, MMA has been viewed as the pinnacle of martial evolution by many. And, as we discussed in a podcast earlier this year, there should be no doubt that MMA has done some very good things for the martial arts as a whole, and there's uh, something that all approaches can learn from, from MMA. You know, I think it's been a very positive thing. The problem that we have is because the modern style of MMA, and I think it would be fair to say that MMA is now its own distinct system, is so very effective when it comes to one-on-one -on -one fights uh, to a conclusion uh, that people think it's equally effective at everything else, you know, and it's not, and it, it can't be. 
If we were to employ competitive MMA tactics in an environment where multiple opponents do or can exist, then you're going to have big problems. In particular, deliberately seeking a grapple and deliberately taking and keeping a fight on the ground are things to be avoided. Now, deliberately seeking a grapple and deliberately taking and keeping a fight on the ground can work brilliantly in a one-on-one fight. You know, we see that in MMA bouts all the time. But where third parties can get involved, that third party will easily be able to stamp and stab at will because, uh, you know, the fight's no longer one-on-one. And, you know, we'll discuss the kind of how that plays out later, you know. But um, Now, I'm just using MMA as an example because that's what most people go to these days when they think of an ultimate system. However, the same can be said as any other one-on-one method. If you were to um, uh, approach a multiple enemy situation, like a boxing bout, a karate tournament, a judo match, or any other such method, there will be problems. Now, I've said before, this is not because there's an inherent flaw with these approaches. It's just that they're designed for different things. Uh, and, and most of the people that I know that train for both one-on-one um, like fighting, if you like, and multiples in self-defense situations, are good at contextualizing what is for what. And that's certainly something I always try to do in my own training and teaching. There's only a problem when people mistake things, fail to understand the the, uh, need for context to reign supreme, or they try to mix everything together into one one one-size-fits-all ultimate approach. If you keep one-on-one methods and multiple methods distinct, uh, then no matter what your base system, you're going to be good. You know. And now, the reason why the aforementioned methods don't fare well is that one-on-one tactics of all types don't fare well when there is more than one person to deal with. Uh, we're not looking to fight to a conclusion, but looking to escape at the first opportunity. Giving all our attention to one person, as you obviously do in like a one-on-one bout, uh, also means that others are being ignored, and this means they can attack you freely. Uh, With multiple enemies, you need to divide your attention between them. Hit one and immediately switch and hit another. If you remain fixed on one enemy for too long, you're giving the others too great an opportunity to attack you. Each individual that is attacking you needs to either be being hit, reeling from a hit, or in fear of being hit. If they're not in one of those states, then they can attack you freely. Um... It's also important to remember that uh, to keep moving at all times so you're not a static target. Uh, remember that the aim is not to fight to win, but fight to flee. And by keeping ourselves moving, we afford ourselves the best chance of escape. Now, I've just said that, it's important that we don't confuse hitting and then moving with hitting on the move. Because it's hitting on the move that we want. Uh, being still when we hit uh, will make you vulnerable. And, and we see this sometimes, you know, people just can't do that. They can't hit as they're moving. They need to be still and hit. See this often when people are doing pad work drills, they'll move around. As soon as the partner puts a pad up, everything goes static. They hit, then they start moving around again. So what we need to be able to do is hit on the move. Now, this hitting on the move and being able to effectively hit multiple targets while never fixating on one for too long is a skill that does need a lot of practice if we're going to be prepared to deal with multiple enemies. And we'll discuss some simple drills for that, you know, later in this uh, podcast. Another key tactical point when facing multiple enemies is to be fully aware of the goal. Uh, when we fight one-on-one in a dojo, on a mat, in a ring, or you know, in a cage, the goal is to win the fight. Uh, that's not the goal we should be working towards when facing multiple enemies in a self-protection situation. The goal is to ensure that we receive the minimal amount of injury, and this goal is best served not by staying and fighting, but by fighting to escape. Again, the standard Uh, one-on-one practice of fighting to the finish is not appropriate and this needs to be reflected in our training and again we'll discuss some more on that later 
Now, perhaps most important of all, we need the right mindset when we're dealing with multiple enemies. Um, we need to believe that, although it can be hard to dominate all the individuals involved, that we can nevertheless dominate the situation. Uh, practice will help develop this confidence in your abilities. However, as bizarre as it may sound, you should acknowledge that there are some advantages, in inverted commas, um, to facing multiple enemies. It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, firstly, any concerns you may have about the legal use of force are minimised. You can go off all guns blazing, because no matter what you do, you're unlikely to be thought of, uh, of acting unreasonably uh, when the courts know that you are facing a group. Secondly, there's lots to hit when you're facing a group. Uh, thirdly, they can't all get you at once, because if they did that, they're going to get in each other's way. Uh, fourthly, it's unlikely that the group will have a combat plan and will act as a unified unit. Uh, they're more likely to act as individuals when thing kicks off, and that chaos is something you can manipulate to your advantage. Now, fifthly, the group are sure to feel the advantage is theirs, and hence a sudden and violent fight back from you can be startling, if not positively shocking. Uh, and then finally, you know, with, with practice, it's not that much harder to preemptively strike two or three enemies than it is to preemptively strike one. And now we'll now move on to look at preemptively striking multiple enemies. But before we do, the point is that as dangerous as facing multiple enemies is, it's far from being a hopeless situation. And you need to have an unwavering belief that you will prevail. You, you can't just accept, you know, okay, this is, you know, give up and die. You need to believe that you can do it. Now, as always, if physical confrontation cannot be avoided, by far the most practical and effective option is to strike first, and in the moment of surprise and confusion and disorientation, you should make good your escape. Now, this applies every bit as much to multiple enemy situations as it does to single enemy situations. Um, but there's obviously a few extra considerations, and we'll look at those now. The first point is, you know, you should forget all that nonsense about taking out the leader first or making an example of the biggest one or the loudest one. That individual may not be the best position, so the person you hit first is the one who is best positioned to be hit. Because the aim is to cause kind of chaos and confusion and to make good your escape, it's rarely a good idea to hit the person directly in front of you first. That person is often deliberately trying to draw your attention and the ones to the side feel a little safer as, as a result. So suddenly hitting a member of the pack as opposed to the mouthpiece uh, removes that kind of safety and creates a lot of confusion. One thing you should also be wary of is preemptively striking in such a way that you expose your back or slow yourself down. Now, to help explain this, and I get this is always difficult when you're listening to me and you can't see me, but uh, just visualize, you know, three people curved around you so that you have one directly in front, one to the left, and one to the right. So we'll just use that as an example to explain the process. So you've got three people in front of you, one directly in front, a little bit of a curve, one to the left, one to the right. Um, so as we've already discussed, it's generally better not to hit the one in the f uh, to the front of you first. So we'd be looking to hit the person to the left or the person to the right, assuming that they're both equally well positioned for you know, the sake of this illustration. Now, if you were to hit the person to your left with your right hand, then you've exposed your unguarded back to the person that was to your right. And what you now need to do is to get back to that person is to do a 180 degree turn. So this choice of hitting the person to the left with your right hand slows down your rate of fire and creates vulnerabilities. A better option would be to first hit the person to your left with your left hand. Now, personally for me, I, I, I practice doing like a back slap for that by dropping my forearm into their neck. Um, this way, I'd, you're still going to be facing the person in the middle, and you have not turned your back on anybody. 
your right hand can then hit the enemy in the middle and as uh, you turn to hit the enemy to the right with your uh, left hand so the whole thing will flow a lot better and no about turns are needed um, and with practice it's pretty easy to get three strikes to three enemies you know in under a second you can do it pretty rapidly when you practice it and understand how to do it without causing about turns and getting in your own way you start getting that flow now even if you don't knock them out okay a solid shot will still cause disorientation uh, and the very shock of a number of them being rapidly struck, you know, so they're all standing in front of them, boom, 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 you know, three of them get hit. Uh, when the thought they were in charge, can that can help it, you greatly in itself. Now, it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that as soon as the final strike hits, that you keep moving. You obviously don't stand there. You hit anything that's within range, and you start to make your escape. Also remember that you don't need to hit everybody. You don't need to hit the entire gang. What you need to do is hit those close enough to you in order to create that confusion and to get you the space to move. So, you know, I don't run towards people in order to hit them. I'm trying to create space. As a basic way to practice this, you can have people role play this with kind of focus mitts on the hand, you know, and they can hold the focus mitts up to make fake heads, if you like. Um, so they'll, you know, play the role of the bad guy, and you're playing the role of the good guy. And at a certain point, you decide, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go. And when you do that, you preemptively blitz those pads uh, in line with what we've just discussed, and then you start making your escape. Those with the pads that will then chase after you, while you keep moving and hitting the pads. You know, in the same way that you would. Anyone gets close enough gets hit. If you route to the spot at any point, which you should not do. Or if you turn your back on any of the pad holders, which you should also not do, then the pad holders can hit you with the pads. Um, as well as doing pad drills such as that, um, it's also important to make sparring with multiple enemies a regular part of practice. Uh, it's not enough to have a competitive style spar with a couple of partners. Because um, I've seen that, you know, people go, yeah, I do multiple opponent sparring. And what they're normally they're moving round like they would on a, co a competitive bout, creating space and one person attacks and the other person attacks. So the sp sparring with, you know, not two people at once, the sparring with one person at once, there just happens to be two people. So the style of the engagement, it's got to match what we'll face in reality. So the drill must be frantic, chaotic, it must involve grabbing, close range striking, uh, it must continue if a person hits the ground and so on. Uh, there must also be an emphasis on escape. Now, a simple way to do that is to designate a safe zone that must be reached by the person facing the multiple opponents. Um, so what you do is you start your drill off, you say, okay, a person A has got to get to the safe zone, got to touch this wall, reach this mat, whatever it happens to be, get through this door, depends where you're training. And then the other ones kind of, you know, will try and stop you from doing that. All right, so you, you've got to break your grips, you've got to move, you've got to hit them as you create space. Now, one thing, most training halls and dojos provide uh, much more space than you're going to get in reality, or often going to get in reality. So it's important to practice doing this in restricted space too. Now, one way we've done that is to use reversible mats, you know, the kind that are blue on one side and red on the other, you know, the jigsaw mats, you can turn them over. Um, well, you create squares out of those mats and you say, well, you can't move out of those squares. What we've also done is you can create doors. So you'll have like, um, say like a red square with one blue mat in that red square, you know, like, so you can use that. Imagine that's the door. So you can't go over the red bits, you can go over the blue bits. Um, and again, that helps because people think about where the escape route is and how they're going to have to move people to get to it. And other people, of course, can also create obstacles to navigate and restrict space. You know, if you've got other people in the dojo, then they're going to naturally uh, cause that where people drill this. Now, it, when you're doing these drills, you know, if you get grabbed, then the aim is not to actively grapple. If you start engaging in the grapple, you've got that one-on-one -on -one mindset again, and that's going to cause problems. So when you do get grabbed, what you've got to try and do is to strike and grapple yourself free. 
as uh, quick aside, you know, breaking grips um, to, to to flee should be a start of standard life practice. You know, and there's lots of that in kata as well. The idea of breaking grips. Um, but it, while you're doing that, if you can't immediately get the grip off, what you should do is do your best to turn yourself and the person or persons that have hold of you so that they are tactically positioned such that the person that has hold of you or the people that have hold of you is between you and the majority of the group. So it's a lot, you know, it's quite hard to resist a fully fledged pull or a push, but you can turn people relatively easily, you know, and so you need to make sure as we are breaking that grip you're aware of the other people around you and again if you just start focusing on the guy you've got hold of the others will walk around the side and just start beating the living daylights out of you in training that illustrates is a fault in reality that you know could be you getting stabbed multiple times so that's obviously a problem now these are things that you know you have to drill live and i'd refer you to the podcast we've done on kata based sparring and live drills for more ideas on how to structure such training the basics, though, are that you need to create various realistic scenarios that can be drilled live so that you gain experience of what tactics and techniques are most successful when facing multiple opponents. It's also important to do such drills so that the right habits are developed, and hence the default actions will be the right ones. Those who have only ever practiced one-on-one -on -one fighting to a conclusion will default to that, uh, and hence they'll leave themselves wide open to attacks from, uh, from others. So, yeah, you know, it needs to be drilled. Um, now, now, one thing as well, just on the, on the nature of these kind of drills, one quick thing to mention is that some people find it hard to accept that real situations are messy. They therefore see the mess, the chaos, of live multiple opponent drills and think that something has gone wrong or that the people involved are not doing it right. The fact is that you need to get used to operating within that chaos. Now, as I say in my dojo, we need to embrace the chaos. Because it's only when you accept, uh, accept that that you can start to successfully navigate that chaos. If you deny the nature of the terrain, it's unrealistic to expect that you can successfully navigate that terrain. So if you engage in live drills and it feels or looks ordered, then you're doing it unrealistically. Chaos is not a sign that things are wrong, but a sign that training is being conducted realistically. Embrace that realism and learn to operate within that chaos. Now, from a traditional karate perspective, it should be noted that there's a precedent for live practice against multiple enemies. In Karate Do My Way of Life, Gichin Funakoshi said that he would practice fighting against four or five people as part of his Tagumi practice. Uh, Tagumi being an Okinawan wrestling system that is thought to have a, a very strong influence on karate. Uh, Funakoshi said, he said, uh, I have seldom had any difficulty thrusting back a single opponent, but my difficulties increased as the number of my opponents increased. And then, you know, talks about some more and then goes on he says it's hard to think of a better way than this to learn to defend against multiple opponents so live practice against multiple opponents is something endorsed by the father of modern karate and yet we still don't see enough of it within modern karate modern karate of course because you know, it's evolved it's changing modern karate does address fighting other martial artists you know we fight each other all the time and in many ways that's part of the problem it becomes a karate versus karate system um, but despite that, it's important to understand that the karate of old, the karate of the kata, is a civilian system that was, to quote Anku Itosu, not intended to deal with a single enemy, but instead as a way of avoiding injury should one by chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian. In other words, it, it's not a, a military or a sporting or a dueling system, but a system of civilian self-protection. 
and you know um, um, Motobu said something very similar where he said that you know karate was the techniques of the kata sorry the techniques of the kata were never intended to be used against a, a warrior on a battlefield or an athlete in a sporting arena you know they're very aware of the contexts uh, for which it was designed now in reference to multiple enemies uh, Yasuhiro Kanishi wrote in judo one always faces single opponents but traditionally, karate practice always focused on multiple opponents. So again, this again reflects you know, karate's civilian nature. Sadly, if you mention multiple opponents to many karateka today, they would immediately think of the extremely flawed demonstrations where the heroic karateka stands surrounded by enemies on the eight main compass points who attack him in exactly the right way, at exactly the right time, in order to ensure their own defeat and to ensure the karateka can use their deeply flawed interpretation of kata. We've talked about the historical, logical and practical failings of this many times before. And looking at um, all of that now wouldn't really be possible, you know. But However, I think it's pertinent to say that I do feel karate does give one the skills needed to deal with multiple enemies. If one is of the view that Kata does that by mapping out extremely precise fake fights, uh, then they are failing to understand the fundamentals of Kata. What kata gives us are techniques and tactics that are ideal for use within civilian situations, which obviously includes multiple enemies. Remember that the angles in kata do not tell us the angle the enemy is at, but the angle we should adopt in relationship to the enemy. Mabuni was very clear on this in his writings, and if you grasp this one point alone, it will make the function of kata much clearer. Through our bunkai practice, we get very good at assuming angles to the enemy, and this is a vital skill when keeping moving and tactically positioning ourselves when facing multiple enemies. If we misunderstand kata and think the angle represents the angle of attack, then our kata and bunkai practice, such as it'll be, uh, will not help us prepare for multiple enemies. When we stick to how the kata was intended to be used and practice bunkai in the way that the past masters uh, intended, we will develop the skills to manipulate people and assume angles, which is vitally important when facing multiple enemies. Kata does not help us by teaching you know, us to simultaneously block uh, simultaneous, carefully prescribed attacks, which is a common but gross distortion of how kata is supposed to be understood. It helps us by giving us a syllabus that we can practice in both compliant and live drills. And when you think about it, the, the idea um, that the karateka starts surrounded, as we see in many bunkai demonstrations, although I personally don't think it's worthy of the word bunkai, but, the, but that's a fundamentally flawed concept. You know, the guy standing in the middle with all the people around him, you, you know, see that all the time. Why stay surrounded? Should not the first thing we do in that situation, if we found ourselves surrounded, we try and burst outside the circle? You know, why is that question never asked? You know, it seems obvious to me. You see the bunkai demonstrations. Guy standing in the middle. You know, why is he in the middle? That, that, that he shouldn't be in the middle. The first thing you should do is try not to be there. And so the idea that kata represents a carefully choreographed battle against enemies who attack along the compass points is not a view that has any merit in my view. And thankfully, regardless of how popular it was in the past, we can clearly see it in rapid decline today. But we've still got a way to go before that misunderstanding is consigned to history, though. Now, there are many uh, elements to dealing with multiple enemies, and it's sure to be a topic we'll return to in future podcasts. I nevertheless hope that this discussion has touched on the, a few of the key points and given you, you know, something to think about. So to recap, some of the important things. Okay, So number one, from a self-protection perspective, there is statistically a greater chance that you'll be attacked by a group than you will be attacked by an indiv individual. So that needs to be covered in training if we're claiming to be addressing self-protection. If, if you're training one-on-one -on -one all the time, you, there's a problem there. You know, you can't be saying you're teaching self-protection and always doing it one-on-one. -on -one. 
Um, number two, one-on-one uh, -on -one mythologies and tactics work brilliantly when things are one-on-one, -on -one, but can be totally inappropriate and fail dramatically when the numbers increase. Uh, number three, despite what the naysayers would have you believe, it is possible to successfully protect yourself against multiple enemies. Not necessarily about fighting them, but by escaping from them, which you know we've, we've discussed. Uh, point four, uh, with multiple enemies, you need to divide your attention between them. Hit one and immediately switch to another, then hit another, then immediately switch and hit another. You keep moving at all times and trying to create space so you can escape. Uh, point five, don't fight to win, but fight to flee. The aim is not to win the fight, but to ensure we receive the minimal amount of injury. Uh, point six, uh, don't think about dominating individuals, but think about dominating the situation. Uh, point seven, practice delivering rapid preemptive strikes to multiple targets in a way that ensures sound tactical positioning and rapid flow. So as we discussed earlier, so you're not crossing over yourself or turning your back on anybody. Uh, point eight, you need to make live drills with multiple enemies a regular part of practice. And point nine, for the Karataka, remember that Kata does give you the skills needed to deal with multiple enemies. Not by mapping out ridiculously improbable situations, but by providing a syllabus that, when followed, will develop the, the abilities needed. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and it's encouraged you to include uh, multiple enemies in your practice, if you're not already doing so. And that has brought out some of the issues that need to be considered. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found that uh, interesting. We will, of course, be back with another podcast in September and give me your ideas for the fifth anniversary podcast in October. Uh, also, of course, don't forget to check out the videos. We're adding new videos all the time. Uh, you can either just keep visiting the site or if you want to be informed uh, the instant that a new uh, video is ready, then uh, you can like us on Facebook. So um, facebook.com forward slash I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y. So facebook.com forward slash Ian Abernethy. And I'm also uh, on Twitter at at Ian Abernethy as well. And we've been on Twitter for just over a year now and we've just uh, hit the uh, 1,000 follower mark, which is really nice. I do uh, enjoy... Um, Twitter. All your tweets to me come directly to my mobile phone. I always do my best to get uh, responses to you uh, as quickly as I possibly can. So I think it's a great way to keep uh, to keep in touch. Uh, so, you know, so follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, check out the videos as well. Uh, and again, just a quick little thanks to, to everybody who's uh, made donations to the site or who's recently came to a seminar or purchased a book or a DVD. Um, all that, that cash goes into the pot and then uh, the free stuff like all those videos that we've been putting online, uh, these podcasts and everything else. Uh, the money for that comes out of it. I say, you know, we don't charge for any of this stuff. It's always free to consume, but obviously it's not free to make. Um, so everyone who's helping kind of keep this thing going, you know, we really appreciate you uh, you doing that. You know, and it's, it's, um, uh, yeah, thank you very much for that. It's greatly appreciated. So, yep, yeah, I'll be back with another podcast uh, next month. Uh, I'll see you on Twitter and Facebook and the website before then, of course. And, uh, yeah, have a good month. And I'll see you next month. Okay, take care. Bye-bye now. <laughs>